Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Farewell. I'm your host, Clay Skipper. Now, here's the thing about winning the Olympic decathlon. Not only do you get a gold medal, you also get the very prestigious title of best athlete in the world. And that's because the decathlon is a grueling two-day competition that features 10 different events from track and field. So on the first day, you have a 100-meter dash, long jump, shot put, high jump, and a 400-meter run. And then on the second day, you follow that up with 110-meter hurdles, discus throw, pole vault, javelin, and finish it out with a 1,500-meter run. So needless to say, if you win the decathlon, you have to be pretty freaking athletic. You have to be able to run really fast and jump really high and throw things very far. And right now, the owner of the title, best athlete in the world, at least on the men's side, belongs to Canada's Damian Warner, who took home the gold at Tokyo in 2021. And when he won by running a 10.1 200-meter dash by long jumping over 8 meters, he was over a decade into his career. And you don't have that kind of longevity without really dialing in what works. So today you're going to hear his story, which is very compelling. He came to the decathlon very late. He found out about it from his basketball coaches after high school. And those basketball coaches went on to become and are still his decathlon coaches. They knew nothing about the decathlon. They learned together. His first year of training, 2010, Damien won silver at the Canadian Championships. And then over 10 years later, in 2021, that team of Damien and his coaches won a gold medal. It's a great story. And then on top of that, you're going to hear all of the mental and physical practices that he has used to become a world-class athlete. One housekeeping note, you will hear both of us refer to Nate. Nate has become something of a legend on this podcast because we always talk about him. Nate works for The Growth Equation, but he also is a Canadian decathlete and has trained with Damien. So he straddles both worlds here. Okay, with that being said, let's get into it. Here is Damien Warner, the world's best athlete. I want to rewind a little bit before we jump into decathlon specific stuff you what was your sort of sports background growing up yeah so so my sports background is quite unique um when you when you talk about like elite athletes i didn't start playing organized sports until i was a grade 11 in high school so i think i was like 15 16 years old whatever age that would be um but i started out playing basketball uh played basketball played football and then because of that got into track and field wow and how come you were late to the organized sports game? Yeah. So I, I grew up in a family that was humble beginnings. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money. So some sports leagues cost a lot of money, like hockey, things like that. Things that I was interested in, we didn't really have the financial means to to join those leagues. Uh, so I played all around our neighborhoods. Like I played hide and go seek. I played road hockey, all those kind of things. Right. So I was always athletic and I was always interested interested in sports, but just never really had the opportunities to join like an organized league. And did you understand yourself as being fast when you were when you were young? To a certain degree. I think that I certainly knew that I had athletic gifts, but I also hit a growth spurt quite late. Uh, it probably wasn't until I was in grade 10 where I grew like five or six inches during the summer. So I remember we had a, a, a gym class where we were all trying to touch the rim just at the end of end of the class, and I couldn't touch it. Um but then I remember going away for the summer and then coming back. And at the end of the gym class, everybody was trying to touch it. 
And all of a sudden I can like hang on the rim. And someone's like, get him a, a volleyball because that's something that I could palm. And I was dunking a ball of volleyball all of a sudden. And then like, get him a basketball. And all of a sudden I could dunk a basketball. And I'm like, what, what happened? You know, that part of things um, opened my eyes to show me what I was capable of. Um, and that certainly happened overnight. And that was, so that was grade 10. And you said you started playing basketball in grade 11. Yeah. Okay. So that must've been, the coach must've been happy to see you out there. The coach was happy. Um, it was one of those things though, where my friends kind of pressured me to join the basketball team because there was always a bit of me that was like hesitant to join. Like I thought I was going to fail. I thought I was going to be cut from the team. And that's something that I didn't really want to happen. So I was a little bit of like, there was some apprehension to join the team. Uh, but my friends encouraged me to join out and and thankfully they did because basketball was always my love. I wanted to be just like a Vince Carter. He was my idol when I was a kid and to be on the basketball team was really special, but there was still a part of me that was like scared of that opportunity. And I would skip practices and stuff all the time just because I was like, I was too scared to fully invest myself in basketball and to an organized team. Um, but once I finally did, I was like at home. You know, and basketball was like my love. And I, I just love the process of going to the the court every single day and working with a group of guys to achieve like an ultimate goal. And thankfully for me, we had great coaches, but we also had a great team. So we were quite competitive. Uh, but yeah, basketball is out of all the things that I've done in my career, basketball is still right up there. Yeah, I saw an Instagram post you put up from a letter you wrote in 2002 that said in 10 years, you wanted to either be an NBA player or winning an Olympic gold medal. Yeah, that's that's wild because that's when I first realized that I made like a, a horrible financial decision. You know, <laughs> field is uh, track and field can be a tough sport that way, but you know basketball was was special. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's all worked out in the end. Do you remember where you were when you uh, did you watch the two thousand one Vince Carter dunk contest? I do, I did. Yes, uh, I remember. Me and my friend were on the phone uh, just as we were watching it at our houses, and. Uh, when he put it through the legs, it's just like, just go nuts, you know? And and after that moment, I just remember like any socks and stuff that I had around the house, I was like balling them up and cutting like the bottoms out of our laundry baskets and just trying to do whatever dunks he would do. And so when you said you, you were afraid to go all in and then you, you did at one point, how did you get yourself to a place where you're like, all right, I'm, I'm bought into this. What changed for you? Yeah. So I, I would like to say it was all me. Um, but I, I, one of my best friends, um, when I, when I was a kid, I, I would always tell people like, cause it was partially true and, and it kind of worked. Like I didn't have the money to join any of these teams. Right. So he went home and he got money from his grandma to pay my team fee. And it kind of got rid of that excuse of like, I don't have the money to join the team. Like my mom will never be able to pay for this. Uh, so it's like, okay, you have the money join the So it's like, I guess I'll do it. And um, after I made the cut and the coaches said that like I had some opportunity to play and I was a starter and all that kind of stuff. Then I was fully invested, you know, and I was just like, I felt like I was at home and Gar and Dennis, my high school basketball coaches are, are great coaches and they made me feel welcome. And um, yeah, no, it's, it was, it was just like an awesome experience, but uh, I've, I've been very blessed to have people in my life that just wouldn't let me fail. Wouldn't let me fall through the cracks. They saw something that I didn't see in myself and they just like propelled me up. And um, yeah, I've been very lucky that way. You say Gar and Dennis were your basketball coaches too? Because they are now they're your coaches still, right? Your your decathlon coaches, right? Yeah. So they started coaching me in basketball when I was in grade eleven, as I mentioned. I was fifteen or sixteen years old. Yeah. I'm thirty three now. So we've been together for wow over half, half life. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is kind of crazy to think about it. Um, but yeah, they've been uh, like father figures to me. Um, 
we've learned the decathlon together, which is like also a really cool thing. Uh, the three of us didn't have any idea how to train a decathlete or um, what was required to win a decathlon gold medal, I guess. But we learned it together. And uh, I think that's what makes our bond and in the situation that we're in currently so special. Do you remember any early lessons you took from basketball that you're still using or even just something that Gar and Dennis told you early that they you know, also told you yesterday or still tell you all the time? Not necessarily from basketball because I'm like an introvert. So whenever, when I was in high school, I didn't really talk to anybody. And Gar has this joke that like when I was in high school for the three years or whatever, uh, he coached me. I didn't say one word to him. I was always there at the practices. I always gave a hundred percent effort, but I just never said anything. And he was saying some of the teachers around the school asked him like, is Damien a mute? Like Damien doesn't talk at all. Like he's in my classroom and he just sits in the back, he hands in his homework and he just goes on about his day. Right. Um, so I didn't really say anything. So like there was no verbal messages that I could have received from Gar and them. Um, I think for me, it was just like showed up, work hard, you know, uh, they named me the team captain, um, even though I didn't, uh, say anything. Um, so I think if I learned anything, it's just like, okay, like your hard work won't go unnoticed, you know? So I, I showed up and I just gave a hundred percent effort every single day. And, um, yeah, I was, I was rewarded for that. When did you first hear about the decathlon discover the decathlon yeah so when i was in when i was in high school i was a very i call it like part-time student i would show up every so often i skipped school a lot not to do anything bad i just didn't understand and fully appreciate the importance of school at the time so i skipped school all the time and because of that my grade suffered um and because i started track and field relatively late i wasn't on anybody's radar for a scholarship so when I graduated high school, the opportunities were non-existent. And I remember going back to Montcalm Secondary School. That's my high school that I went to. And I did a workout by myself. And I remember after I finished the workout, just like crying on the track by myself on this dirt track, because I thought that my career in track and field and sports was over. Um, wasn't able to get into Western. The school that I could get into didn't have a track and field team. I just thought it was over. Um, soon after that, Gar and Dennis called me into their, their classroom and they're like, so there's this event called the decathlon and we think that you could be really good at it, you know? And Gar told me the story of when he was younger, he watched this athlete called Daly Thompson compete at the Olympics. And he's like, you have, you're fast. You can jump high. I think that you could be really good at this event. And I had nothing else. So I was just like, sure, why not? Um, and so that would have been what, like 2009, 2010-ish? Yeah, I think around yeah. 2009. Okay. Because then you won silver at the 2010 Canadian Championships, right? So you had some success pretty quickly. Yeah. So we learned. I learned about the decathlon in 2010. Um, so that's when I started training for the decathlon. So I, I think they told me about it in 2009, uh, but I didn't start training for the decathlon until like that new year, 2010. Uh, but then I won the I won the silver medal at the Canadian Championships. Um, the following year I went to Jamaica and I won second at like the North, North American Caribbean combined image championships. And then I qualified for the world championship in Daegu, Korea. So things happened quite quickly after that. And so one thing I'm curious to talk to you about is your longevity. 14 years is a long time to be performing at like an elite level. And so I'm curious when you started back then. What what were your expectations? I mean, did you come up with a sort of plan and like this was always what you were hoping to get to or how does where you are now compared to where you thought you might be? Yeah, believe it or not, like this was kind of always a plan. 
um, because Gar and Dennis had such great uh, confidence in me from like an early age, before we even understood the decathlon, before I even could name all 10 events of the decathlon, they're told they're coming up with plans of like, oh, in this Olympics, you're going to win the gold medal and this is going to happen. And of course, our timeline was off a little bit, but ultimately we got to the the goal that we were trying to achieve. Um, but yeah, their, their, their confidence was there from day one. Um, it was something that we had to learn a ton about. We had to reach out to a lot of people, try to get as much information as possible. But when I learned about the decathlon, I was fully invested. I saw it as like a second opportunity for me to kind of um, continue my athletic journey. Uh, so I didn't have a computer at home. So I went to the public library and I just went on on YouTube and I started searching like decathlon champions, all that kind of stuff. And the decathlon champion at the time was Brian Clay. Um, so I watched every single training video that I could possibly find. Uh, I listened to every single interview that he had, read every single article. I just wanted to see like what he was doing. Uh, from a training standpoint, like how he moved, all that kind of stuff. But I also wanted to see like how he thought, like like how he approached certain events, what his coach says to him, things like that. Like I tried to learn as much as I possibly could. And and I think that that has helped me out and kind of set the the foundation for my journey as I moved forward. What do you think it was that got like its claws in you and made you so passionate about it? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I Honestly, I think it was the having the second opportunity. But then once mm. I started training for the decathlon, like it was tough, you know? And I, I think even though I didn't play organized sports, a lot of things that I did from an athletic standpoint came relatively easy. Like I was always good at road hockey and I was always good at like, I was always the last person to be found in hide and go see. I was, I always knew that I had athletic abilities, but when I started training for the decathlon, I was just like, I was so frustrated. Like I can't figure out this thing, this pole vault thing, you know, and I'm 34 years old and I still haven't figured it out. Uh, so I think that the challenge of trying to figure out all the events is the thing that keeps bringing me back. You know, it's this idea of that if I improve this, this, and this, then I'll get to this score that I'm ultimately looking for. Um, but you, that you keep moving those goalposts and you never really achieve uh, the perfect decathlon, but it's, it's this, this, this idea that maybe one day. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting because that, that idea of, I'm thinking of almost um, that movie Ford versus Ferrari. Have you seen that? I have not seen that yet, Okay, but it's Christian Bale. I'm going to mess this up. Sorry for any Ford versus Ferrari fa- super fans who are listening, but he plays a driver. I I don't remember his name, but he's in search of like the perfect lap. Like he's always remembering the, the hairpin turns and the corners and when to accelerate and when to break. And it sort of tortures him a little bit, right? Cause he's an unbelievable driver. He wins, but he can never get the perfect lap. And I imagine there's something similar for you, which is like the perfect decathlon. It's like all 10 events. Um, and there's that tension between, falling in love with the process and also being in pursuit of this thing that maybe you might never achieve. I mean, does that, where do you stand on that? Have you learned to love the sort of monotony of the process or you, or do you get frustrated by not being able to hit the perfect, the perfect score? Yeah, it's tricky. At first I hated the process, you know, like the only thing I loved about the decathlon was actually competing itself. So going to practice every day and trying to learn the events, I like spies that. And a matter of fact, I remember having like an argument with my coach or just breaking down to my coach being like, I just want to get to the point one day where I'm not trying to learn these events where I could just do these events, mm. but it never comes, you know, it's like, it's, you're always trying to learn something. And I think that's the beauty of the decathlon. Uh, and I think that's something that also allows you to have longevity is that you only have seven days a week and you have 10 events. And it's like, you just don't have enough time to master any individual event. Um, so you can never reach your full potential. But at the same time, there's always room for growth. 
Um, so every single day I have something new to work on. And this, I think that's why I love it. I imagine after 14 years of doing this, you have to have sort of a pretty resolute faith in your habits and routines because it's shown that you, that it works. Like the proof mm-hmm. is in the pudding in a way. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's interesting. Cause I think one thing we talk a lot about on this, or an idea we explore a lot on this podcast is the idea of consistency and like stacking good days as opposed to trying to spring for some sort of hack or quick fix. And I think that applies to like people who aren't in the Olympics, but I think it especially applies to people who are doing what you're doing, which is like you're competing at such a high level that the margins of difference are so infinitesimal that I imagine it could be like seductive to be like, I need to do, I need to do something different. I need to do a different gimmick. And that can get you away from the sort of idea of stacking good days and staying consistent in your routine. How do you think about balancing those, like striking that balance? Yeah, it's it's always been a tricky thing because as athletes, we have really high expectations on ourselves. Like whenever I go to practice, whenever I go to compete, I always expect myself to be the best, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you learn relatively quickly when you're training for any event. But I think the decathlon specifically that that just not going to happen. The days that I have, quote unquote, bad practices far outweigh the days where I'm feeling amazing and having great practices. And sometimes it frustrates me. uh, But my coach always tells me, like, we're not trying to have these great results. You know, we're not trying to throw 15 meters in shot put today. We're trying to have consistent results over time. You know, like if you can throw 14 meters every single time or 14 and a half every single time, when you get to the decathlon, when you're rested and you have caffeine in your system, all that kind of stuff, some adrenaline then you'll throw what you're capable of. But we're not looking for that on a day-to-day basis. And uh, my coach used to say it all the time and it used to like drive me insane is that he's like, there's no such thing as a bad practice. Um, and I just hated that because I always wanted great practices, but you learn over time that that's not what you're looking for. Uh, you're kind of like trying to work in the middle. You're just trying to do things fairly well, um, stay healthy, and then every so often have a little sprinkle of of high performance and then go to the competitions. And that's where that's where you need to be on. When did you become okay with that? Like, let's train in the middle. How many years did it take you to get to a place where you could accept that? Um, I, I think for me, it was in 2014 mm. that I fully understood it. Uh, and it wasn't for, it wasn't my decision. Uh, I was in Santa Barbara at a training camp and I was doing a workout and things were going amazing. Uh, and I was running a 250 and the last 10 meters of the 250, I like pulled up. I felt something in my my right calf. And this was like super painful. I I couldn't walk or run or anything like that for, for probably like close to two months. Uh, but we had the Commonwealth games coming up. So I did a lot of stuff in the pool. I did a lot of stuff that I felt like wasn't like conducive to getting this result that I was looking for. Uh, got to the, got to the Commonwealth games in Glasgow and lined up for the hundred meters and ran 10 28, which was a huge personal best, uh, jumped seven fifty four, and the long jump was a huge personal best. And I was just like, how, how did this happen? And it's just like, no, like the, what I thought was required, having these amazing practices was not actually required. It was me being healthy um, and me just being in general, good fitness and understanding what I was trying to accomplish on the day of in each individual event. Um, huh. it, that's kind of like when I was just like, okay, I don't need to be a hundred percent. Uh, and now me and my coach kind of live, but live by it, you know, like we're not looking for perfect in practice by any means. Huh. Has that also applied to sort of, um, 
like when you zoom out and take a more macro timeline and think like, okay, you just won, you just competed and won the gold medal at the Olympics in 2021. I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to take two weeks off or I'm going to take, I don't know how long you take off, but I saw somewhere afterwards where you said um, a quote where you were talking about rehab starts today. And you said general movement stuff, play some basketball and play catch. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting like recovery process for an Olympian. But it just makes me think it sounds very similar to this idea of like not every practice needs to be perfect. If you have a ton of confidence in your craft, you've been doing this so long, you've proven that you're so good at it. Maybe there's no you're not insecurely attached to your sport in a way where after the Olympics wraps, you could take two weeks off. You could take three weeks off. Is that does that also apply to sort of that that macro timeline as well? Absolutely. Um, Again, going to a training camp in Santa Barbara, I remember. Harry, Harry, Harry Mara, he was Ashton Eaton's coach. And he was saying that after those big competitions, Ashton took like two months off. Wow. Where he just like eats burgers and just relaxes and all that kind of stuff. And again, some of us younger athletes hearing it, we're like, this is insane. You know, we took like a week off or two weeks off. But after the Olympics and after almost every big competition since then, I've taken like two months off. Uh, I think the most I've ever taken off after the Olympics in 2016 was four months. Um, just to kind of like, sit back and relax. And now I view it as like something that's like a requirement to kind of, because the decathlon and everything that's involved with it, competing at a high level is super stressful. Uh, So I think it's important from like a balance standpoint to take a step back and just do things that uh, maybe you'd want to do in the off, like normally, you know, if you're just a normal person, like, what would you want to do today? Like, I want to eat some cheesecake. Sure. You know, I want to go play some basketball. Let's do it. Uh, And just not worry about my sport or the decathlon at that time. It's hard because I'm passionate about the decathlon and there's always like mind creep where it always just kind of creeps in your mind. And it's something that you're like always thinking about, but that's why I kind of distract myself with like playing basketball or pickleball or other things where you can't really focus on that while you're kind of invested in a specific task. But then at that, that night, if it creeps in, do you have a way of like, is just, you just notice it and let it go? Or like, how do you deal with that voice? Cause I imagine it could get loud. Yeah. So it, it's never been a voice that has told me like, do more. You can, you're not training hard enough. It's never been like that. It's always just been like, how can I improve? How can I be better? You know, like it's always been me like visualizing the decathlon or this perfect decathlon that I'm thinking about. Um, I don't really fight that. Um, I, I view that as something that's kind of helped me. Um, like going into the Olympics in 2021, for example, when I stood on the podium, it almost felt like a little bit of deja vu because I felt like for like 10 years, I've been like envisioning that specific moment, you know, uh, going into like an attempt on your third attempt. It's like, I've been here before, you know, I've visualized this like last night when I was laying in my bed, you know, like, I don't know. I I feel like that helps to a certain degree. Obviously it can be uh, a hindrance and it can hurt you if, if it's, if it's too much. Uh, but I feel like I've struck a good balance on, on, on how that works. And I think what's helped keep that balance at bit, like, help keep some sort of balance is uh we have a two-year-old that kind of just always wants your attention so it's awfully hard to think about the decathlon or anything like that when he he wants you to play hockey or throw the baseball around so um yeah it kind of works but i imagine it's good to have that lesson about balance because it would be hard to live with it like have a two-year-old if you didn't have a little bit of like you were able to have this sort of balance and understand that you could let it go a little bit yeah, no, for sure. Uh, and and at one point in time, there was a time where I thought that all those visualizations and daydreamings, I call them, like that I was having throughout the days, were like such an important part of my success. 
that when when we had Theo and when we had like all these sponsorship events and things like that, I thought that it was like gonna like I'm not gonna be able to compete mm-hmm. anymore. You know, like uh, there's no way that I could be a high level athlete now. Um, that these things that I deemed important are no no longer able to happen. Um, but it turns out that they're just things that were like kind of insecurities or or who knows what you would call them. But yeah, you, you learn important lessons, and and I think one of those big important things that happened that kind of expedited that timeline was like COVID. Um, a lot of what we thought was possible was no longer possible. And we had to find different avenues around that. Yeah. And you had specifically had a pretty difficult, or uh, you had to do, you had to adapt to a different training schedule, right? Didn't you, didn't you have to train in an old hockey arena or something like that? Yeah. So the, the facility that we train right now is around a hockey rink. So okay. it's freezing cold, right? And and for years we've been trying to like lobby for a, a new facility. We're like, there's no way that you can be a high level athlete and train around a hockey rink. It just doesn't work. Well, when COVID ha- happened and the, that arena got shut down, like now we are inside the hockey rink. So it's like <laughs> when you think, but like that can't get any worse, it did. And um, yeah, that was that was a tough thing to kind of manage. Uh, the community here in London, Ontario, came together and built long jump runways and long jump pits. We had a tent set up with a, a curved treadmill in there with like a bunch of heaters so that we can do some kind of long distance running. Um, the, the furthest we could run was 30 meters and then crash into the boards. Um, yeah, it was an experience to say the least. Wow. And that was the training cycle that ultimately led to the gold, right? Yeah, it was. And I remember after a pole vault workout, um, I was just like fed up. Like I, at first it was kind of like a honeymoon phase where everybody's like, you know what, this is going to work. Everybody's so happy. And once it started to get like really cold in there, uh, like there was times where it was like zero degrees in there. And, um, I was just like, I'm done, you know, like this doesn't work. Uh, and I think it was like, once things around the world started to open up just a little bit, uh, Kevin Mayer in France was training in like the South of France, some beautiful locations. And Ashley Maloney was training in Australia and these awesome conditions. And I'm like, here I have like heaters in my mittens. I'm tr- running in a tent on a treadmill. I'm like, this is ridiculous. You know, like there's no way that this can work. And uh, I always tell people that it felt like these dreams and these goals that me and Gar set for ourselves were like just gone. And I like almost had to accept the fate that like, this isn't going to work anymore. Um, and then we had our son and it's like all those things that in my life in track and field that I was stressing about, like I had something else to stress about and like those things almost didn't worry as much anymore. And I showed up and I just went through the process every single day, like go there, run, go home and play with a little boy. And um, yeah, it, it worked out in the end, but there was a lot of times where I thought like this wasn't going to be a possibility. Yeah. Wow. You could only run 30 meters, 30 meters and then crash into the boards. Yeah. I, I think there's a video out there somewhere. Um, I don't want to watch it too many times because I'll probably get nightmares, but no, it's, you, you learn through those processes that, it's not so much about like world-class facilities and stuff that you have around you. It's about like your plan and it's about what you have around you. Um, and when you talk about consistency, like we did before, like that's all we could do in there. We, we weren't capable of doing these grand performances. We weren't capable of doing like 400 meter time trials. We just did the basics as best as we could and went home about our day and just repeated that over and over and over. Do you, you mentioned daydreams, visualizations, are those daydreams intentional? Like, are you, I mean, I, that's kind of a oxymoron, I guess a daydream is not usually intentional, but are you doing specific visualization techniques or what do the daydreams do for you? Yeah, no, it, it's usually like, 
I've, I've tried to intentionally sit down and do it, but I feel like I don't really have the focus to do so. Um, and, and it just doesn't feel, it almost feels like I'm forcing it. Um, but under like instructions from like my psychologist that I work with, my sports psychologist, um, he's kind of encouraged me to visualize the decathlon, but not necessarily always like everything working out perfectly. Uh, he's like, visualize it like pouring rain or you have a fault on your first attempt or your second attempt and you have one attempt left and everybody wants to visualize these perfect scenarios, but that rarely ever happens. Put yourself in like realistic situations that you might find yourself in. Uh, and maybe then when you encounter those situations in real life, then maybe you'll be more equipped to deal with those situations or feel like you have a, like he, he also encouraged me to like, think about how I would react to those situations. You know, like, am I going to panic or am I going to like take a couple deep breaths and, and follow through with my routine? And yeah, it's definitely helped take my, um, athletic endeavors to a different level. I talked to an ultra runner, Courtney DeWalter, and she was saying she has, she's a very visual person and she has like an actual filing cabinet that like when she's out on a run and it's like, she's, you know, running in like hundred mile races, similar, different in a decathlon, but similar in terms of problems are going to come up over the course of two days of a decathlon problems are going to come up over a hundred miles. And she's like, I visualize my filing cabinet and I go in there and I'm like, Oh, is my stomach upset? Like I have a folder for that. If my, like my legs giving out, I have a folder for that, which I thought was a cool idea. Yeah, no, it's very cool. And I'm, I'm very happy that my, my sports psychologist like recommended me to do that because even times like, okay, like the bus to get to the stadium is late, you know, like visualize things like that. And like, we went through like everything and it almost felt like every single thing that possibly could have went wrong. Like I had like a contingency plan of like what I was going to do if one of those things happened. And um, when that happens, you show up and you feel more prepared than you ever have. And I remember going to like a whole bunch of these like athlete retreats and a lot of the coaches would get up and they'd talk about like, you want to show up and you want to feel more prepared than you ever have. And you don't want to have any doubts or any regrets and things like that. And I was like, that's kind of like baloney. And there's part of me that still doesn't fully believe in you. You could be as prepared as you think. But when I showed up in Tokyo, I was just like, unless something drastic happens, there's no way I could lose it to the Cathlon. And that's a powerful feeling to have. Hey everyone, it's Clay. Sorry to interrupt. But I want to pause real quick to ask a huge favor. If you've made it this far, then I'm hoping that you're enjoying this episode. Maybe you're a loyal listener, farewell, or a fan of the growth equation. If so, and if you feel like helping us out, I just ask that you take two minutes right now while you're thinking about it to review this podcast or send it to someone, share it with somebody. I feel very, very lucky to have this work and to have you as listeners. And if you like the work we're doing, you want us to keep doing it, reviewing and sharing the show is the best way you can ensure that happens. It's the best way you can support us and what we're doing at The Growth Equation. I honestly don't love doing this part of the job, the promotion, asking for reviews and subscribers, but I do love the job. And so I'm here doing it. So please, if you have a second and you feel compelled, please review or share the show. Okay, that's all. Thanks for listening and thank you for the support. Back to Damien. Are there other things that jump out to you that your sports psych strategies that um, they've given you that you think have been really helpful? Probably the most important thing that he's ever recommended to me. And it was the first thing that he ever recommended to me, like in our first conversation. And that was like routines. Um, he, he sent me like this article about like Tiger Woods dad and how Tiger Woods 
uh, father always impressed on him, like the importance of having a pre-shot routine, go through the same thing every single time. Uh, and it kind of made me reflect back onto like my bas- basketball career. And I guess going back to that question that you had earlier about, is there anything that I learned from basketball? I used to get up to the free throw line and I used to just like do whatever I thought in the moment, right? Like if, if I was feeling comfortable, I might dribble it like three times, but if I'm shooting like the game winning shot, maybe I don't dribble at all. or just dribble it once. Right. And uh, Gar, my coach was always telling me like, if you look at someone like Steve Nash, who is a, a great free throw shooter, he dribbles the ball twice. He maybe licks his hand and flicks his ear, uh, his hair behind his ear, and then he shoots the free throw. But he does the same thing every single time. And if you do the same thing every single time and you practice that routine, when whether you're doing a, a like a normal free throw shot or you're shooting for the game winning shot, it's going to be the same. Uh, and you'll be able to prepare yourself for like those high intensity situations. Like I've been here before. I know exactly what to do. Just go through my routine and. Uh, my sports psychologist has kind of encouraged me to have a pre-shot routine, I guess, for every single event that I do. Uh, and that's helped me out a ton. Mm. Yeah, it's great. I love that. It reminds me of NFL kickers a little bit too. We, you know, we're obsessed with American football here. Same thing. It's like if you're kicking a field goal in the second, I mean, a PAT extra point in the second quarter, or you're kicking like a 53 yarder to win it fourth quarter, go through your same routine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's, <clears throat> that, that's what my, my cues were going into the Olympics in, in 2021 is, is like execute what I've been practicing every single day and also just follow through with my routines. I had them all written down in a little book. I had little notes in all my shoes, just like what I was going to do um, for the blocks. I was going to get down. I was going to lick my fingers or whatever I do. And then like, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I just had all these like little routines that I would do and just kind of executed those to what I would call perfection uh, or the standard that I was looking for. Uh, and it, just so happens to to lead to the result that I was looking for. Yeah, it worked. You say you had notes in your shoes. What do you mean? Yeah. So w- one of the things that me and my my sports like talked about was how do you get over something going poorly in a decathlon? It's the ine- inevitable. It's going to happen. But also, how do you move past something that went really well? Uh, because that can also derail you. I remember going to Austria in 2015 and my personal best at the time was 1028 uh from the the commonwealth games and i ran 1012 uh and i was just like losing my mind like what happened and i was super excited and i was like i'm gonna long jump so far today and i ran super fast and i like ended up jumping like 699 or 701 or something like that which was horrible for me um and that almost just like destroyed my decathlon so i was like i have to have strategies to deal with when things are not when things are going really well, but also if things go poorly. So my coach, I mean, my, my sports psychologist came up with this idea to have my cues and all the things that I'm working for in the individual shoes that I'm working with. Cause I use like 10 different pairs of shoes for a decathlon. And he's like, when you're running the hundred meters, you only think about the hundred meters when you're wearing these specific shoes. And when you take those off, then you leave whatever happened in that event in the past. And when you put on your next bikes, then you're, you're hundred, I mean, you're a, a long jumper and then a shot putter and a high jumper and a 400 meter runner and so on and so forth. Uh, and yeah, it, it's, it's not always the easiest thing because we're human and we bring some of that baggage with us. Uh, but I think it's really helped me kind of just leaving some of that stuff in the past and just staying focused on whatever event is at hand. Wow. Was that the first time you employed that strategy? It was, um, it was, so at that competition, uh, it wasn't the first time like at the Olympics, uh, we tried that at a competition in Austria earlier that year, which also went really, really well. 
Uh, and that's just one of those things that we kept and we continue to do as we move forward. Um, but I remember my pole vault coach also said something in a similar line. Like if you go into one of these events and let's say it goes poorly and you go into the next event and you allow it to like um, start to derail you or really affect your, your mental space or what you're physically capable of doing in that event, like you rob yourself of an opportunity to kind of get yourself back on track or to put a decathlon together that um, is quite good. Uh, and he kind of compared it to golf. Uh, and he's like, you can have like bogey, 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 and just thinking it's the end of the world, but you might have a hole in one on the next hole, you know, and you're just all of a sudden right back into things and you could have another hole. in one. like, you just never know what's around the corner. Always give yourself that opportunity to at least try, you know, and that's always something that I've done is like, just put myself in the best situations where I can just see what happens. Always give yourself a chance. You find that you're, I like that a lot. Do you have, do you find that your internal feelings are different? for different events based on how proficient you've been at them in the past. Like to make more specific when you're going out for the hundred meters, which you've often dominated versus pole vault, which is something that I think you struggled a little bit with more. Do you like, do you have less confidence? Are you in the same mental headspace? How does that compare? Yeah. Now I'm at the place where I understand the reality of the situation. Like I'm going to have some events that are weaker, some events that are stronger. Uh, I have ways that I can kind of, pole vault well and i've been able to do that consistently so i have like the results now to kind of have calm with that process but there was a time where it was starting to like creep into my head a little bit and and have like bad outcomes um or just put me in a position where i wasn't able to compete like i knew i was capable of like the 100 meters has always been a strong event same with the long jump um i would always get off to this like really hot start and then Hurdles on the second day was also quite strong. I was always a good discus thrower, but throughout the whole process, it's like in the back of your mind, it's just like, well, we have pole vault coming up. And sometimes you're in this like combined events room and you have the 31 other guys in there with you and they know that pole vault's coming up too, right? So if I'm worrying about like, oh, like Kevin could kind of take the lead back or this person can come back because he has a strong javelin and you can tell that like, okay, we have pole vault coming up and Damien's probably going to struggle and we have a chance, like never give up. Um, and I've always told myself, like, if I can figure out these events, then it would be like soul crushing for some of them, you know, because then they wouldn't really have that opportunity to come back. Um, but it took me a long time to not only like raise my pole vault and some of these technical events up to a level where it doesn't leave the door wide open, but also mentally for me to get over it, like, okay, like, you just need to focus on what you can control. Uh, stop trying to think about you need to jump 510. Worry about jumping uh, 450 and then 460, 470. Just go with the process and then deal with that when it comes. Um, I've gotten much better at that, but it was definitely something that I struggled with for a long time. I can also imagine like you have to do 10 events. And so you have to get locked in for each of those. And I was talking with Nate about this last night. He was talking about sort of having like a focus gas tank right and like you have to sort of divide your gas tank between 10 different events versus somebody who's just doing the mile can visualize the mile all week and their race plan but i imagine if you went as deep as that miler went on the mile on every event you would just be so taxed so it's sort of like you have to have enough gas to lock in but not use so much gas that you don't have any left for the the two-day event for sure you have to be able to check in and kind of check out is like what I call it. Um, and the perfect example for me is someone like Usain Bolt. 
Like mm. one, one of the things that I've always admired is that he's behind the blocks and he's dancing and he's playing with the crowd. And as soon as the guy says on your mark, there's nobody more focused than him. You know, he understands the task and he goes to where he needs to go to compete. And I think the same thing needs to happen in the decathlon. You need to be able to have conversations and joke around with your coaches or some of the other competitors. But then when they say like Damien Warner's up next to throw, then you got to be able to flip the switch and get to where you need to go. Because if you focus too hard for 48 hours, good luck. It's it's from personal, maybe somebody out there can do it, but um, it's it's not for me. And it, it'd be extremely difficult and extremely taxing. And I imagine like unenjoyable um, if you had to do that. What's it like to run the 1500 last? I can imagine in some ways it's just because you're like, like then you can just go and let it all go. I just, I'm so, and, but that seems like such a killer event to have as the final one. Yeah. In, in my closet behind me, somebody gave me a, a a shirt and it says the decathlon, nine events and one sick joke. <laughs> it's, uh, when I go through and I write down, like, let's say like I have three cues for each event, right? Like it could be fairly easy to kind of go through and like recite what me and my coach said about like the hundred meters, the long jump and all this kind of stuff. When it gets down to the 1500, it's just like, just run. It's just like all heart, like just leave it all yeah. in the tr- it's like no specific cues. It's like maybe like the splits that I need to run, but it's like all heart, just like like just give it all out there. You know, it's it's a it's a different event. Yeah, I love that. You brought up golf earlier. I know you like golf. I've always I've always wondered what it would be like to be playing the Masters, and yeah. you have like you Thursday round, you play great, and you got to go to bed Thursday and be like, this says more about me than golfers. This is why I'm not on the tour. But like I'd be like, don't screw up on Friday. Then Friday you play great, and you're like, don't screw up on Saturday. So if you have day one of decathlon and it goes great. Do you, I mean, what do you like that night? Do you have any processes around like trying not to think about it? It's, it's hard, you know? And that's one of the things that I have always admired about golf as well is like how they maintain their focus through those good shots and those bad shots. Like, how do you maintain your composure? And I remember in 2021 at the Olympics, I had a fairly decent lead going into the day two and after the, the first day, we have to go through the mix zone and they asked us all sorts of questions like, is a world record on pace? Is this going to happen? Are you going to win a gold medal? And I was just like, we're just getting started. You know, like we have day two tomorrow and we all know my pole, my struggles with pole vault and javelin and some of these other more technical events, right? Like there's no room for me to like lose focus. Um, but then you get back to your room and you're playing around with your calculator and like if this and this and this happens, but it's like, you kind of have to allow yourself to have that excitement and, and to see what's, what's there because that gets you excited about the next day. And it shows you like all these things that we worked on. There's a possibility for this to happen, you know, like that's important to happen, but at the same time, it's important to kind of bring yourself back down and be like, we still have to take care of business. We still have to execute. A lot of things can go wrong tomorrow. And, um, let's kind of like be an adult about this and be a professional about this. You know, it's, uh, it's tricky. Um, but I remember after the pole vault, we had like a five hour break and, uh, we went back to the athletes village. And as we were walking to catch the bus, um, I turned to my coach and I was just like, we're going to win a gold medal today, you know? And, and we got giddy for a little while and then we're like, we still have to execute. But it's like, after that moment, I knew because, everything else was effort. And I knew that from like an effort wise, I'm not going to let anybody beat me. Um, so like, that was a, a cool moment. Uh, but then at, after, like when I got back to the village, I'm like, don't step down any stairs. Don't sprain your ankle. Don't let anything like unforeseen happen. That's one. That's, that's, that's a cool little story. Did you, um, what event is the pole vault? Which number? Uh, it is number eight. Okay. 
Yeah. So that left, what did you have left after that? Uh, Javelin and the 1500. Okay. But my, my lead was pretty decent. Like it was like, I think Kevin would have had to beat me by like 15 or something meters and then also beat me in the 1500. Um, But at the same time, I was like, if anybody could do it, it would be Kevin Mayer. Like Mm -hmm. he's an incredible Javelin thrower. And I'm like, what if you throw 50 meters, then this could all happen. So it's like, there's all these thoughts, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I went through my warm up for the, the Javelin and I was throwing like the worst I've ever thrown. And Kevin was throwing amazing. And my coach is like semi panicking and I'm semi panicking. And I'm like, why does my approach feel all off? And like, this is happening and this is happening. And it turns out that somebody kicked my approach, like my measurement. And it was in like two meters. And there was a time where I'm just like, take a deep breath. I went back to this book that I had everything written down in. I asked the officials, can I have the measuring tape back? Just, I need to measure this again. And I saw that I was off and I was just like, okay, let's fix this. And went up through a throw and I was just like, okay, it's back where it needs to be. And, um, but there was certainly a moment of panic and it was an all smooth sailing from a uh, pole vault onward. Yeah. Wow. What's, what's, is this the book where you keep your cues or what do you keep in the book? Yeah. So in this book, I have my cues. I have measurements that I've wrote, written down. Um, like I have just like notes about like I've done the work, um, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff, right? I'm healthy, all that kind of stuff. Um, but my my partner has this kind of tradition where every single competition that I've been to since like 2012, she's either gotten people in my life that are important to write messages in there, or she's created these funny images like with our son, like him throwing shot put discus and stuff like that, right? Um, and she usually tells me like not to open it up until the competition starts. Um, so I usually like write down all my measurements and stuff like that. And then once the competition's starting, I look at some of these images throughout the, the competition for the first time. And it's like a nice distraction, um, certain. Yeah. And I've kind of used that as a tool, uh, to kind of distract me away from the pressures of the decathlon. Um, which is funny because like, you're always trying to stay focused, obviously, uh, but you're always trying to find tools that can kind of remove you from the situation. And, um, that's one of those things that has been a big tool for me. That's awesome. What do you, what does it do for you when you look at those images? Yeah, it, it just sometimes like there has been times where it's kind of like led to like a little bit of tears. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you kind of have to be like snap out of it. You're on, you're on, you're on camera. Like millions of people are watching you. Like just, you have a, you have a task to focus on. Um, but at the same time, it just like, you know, like it brings you to this idea that I'm here obviously because I worked hard, but I'm here because a lot of people invested a lot of time and energy into what I'm doing. Uh, and you learn that you're not only doing this for yourself, but you're doing it for a lot of other people. And um, yeah, you just go out there with that in the back of your mind, like the way that I present myself, um, the style that I'm competing, like if I'm just going to leave everything on the track, you know, like that's not just for myself, that's for other people. And I think sometimes that's a lot more powerful than just doing something for yourself. Like it's somewhat easy to let yourself down, but it's very hard to let other people down. Hmm. That's beautiful. I like that a lot. You know, something Brad, Steve, and I talked about recently um, is this idea of the arrival fallacy, which is this, it, it's the concept. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's, mm-hmm. if, if not the official term, you might be uh, familiar with the idea, but it's like, we often hold something up that we really want to achieve, like a gold medal, for instance, but it could be writing a New York Times bestselling book, or it could be finally finding a partner. It could be any of these things. And oftentimes when we arrive there, we get there and we're like, Oh, I still have all the same problems, right? Like arriving here didn't necessarily make me happy. 
Um, and the thing we talk about is like, that means you sort of have to fall in love with the process of getting there because if you're always just want to get to the mountaintop and you can't enjoy the climb, you're going to be inevitably disappointed. So I'm curious for you, like winning the gold medal, obviously that's an, that's a huge point of arrival. Um, I'm curious what that ex- experience was, was like for you. Yeah, it was, it was one of those things where it was an incredible experience, obviously, because it was something that I was hoping to accomplish for a really long time. Um, so to finally accomplish it, not only for myself, but for my coaches, Gar and Dennis, Vicky, Dave, um, family sponsors that have kind of supported me. It was, it was nice to share that with them and be like, we did it because along the whole journey that we've had, there's been a lot of people that have tried to get me to move to different locations and have told me that my coaches don't have enough experience. Like you can't do it there. Um, so to accomplish that, it was kind of just like a, yeah, we did it, you know, and maybe you should have listened to us. And maybe sometimes, um, having a connection with somebody, um, and having like a really good, strong partnership with a group of people is more important than a little bit of expertise that you can get from somewhere else. Right. Um, because me and my coaches have also been very open to getting that expertise where we need to. So, uh, we've had no ego that way. Um, so to share that experience was obviously, um, like an incredibly awesome experience, but it's never something that I put my happiness on. Uh, I never thought that winning a gold medalist, like winning the gold medal would make me happier, nor was it like a goal of mine. Uh, it was just honestly something that I was hoping, like, I just, I was curious, you know, like, am I capable of being at my best on these two days? Am I capable of being the best decathlete in the world on these two days? And um, yeah, when I did it, it was almost just like, as anticlimactic as it might sound, it was just like, I checked the box being like, yeah, I did it. You know, I'm happy with that, you know? And uh, I, I've always believed that happiness is something that comes from within. Like it's not something that you get from achieving something or buying something or something that somebody else gives you. You have to kind of find peace with peace within yourself. Um, so I, I never really placed my happiness on that goal. And uh, I just, I just wanted to see what I was capable of ultimately at the end of the day. Wow. That's great. Approaching your curiosity and just being like, let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's all you can, all I could have really did um, just because knowing how my journey started and uh, it wasn't kind of set in stone. It wasn't something that I really thought was possible from like a really early age. It was something that happened out of a lack of opportunity and something that kind of was like very haphazardly put together along the way. Um, and then it's just like, once you learn and you see like, okay, maybe I am capable of these things. Um, you start to like build and work with some other people to, to get to this goal. Um, but I just wanted to see like, am I capable of it? You know, like when my, when my mom told me when I was younger that you could do anything you set your mind to. And when Gar told me that I was going to be a world championship one day, like world champion one day, like, is that a possibility? I, I just wanted to see for myself, like, are these, are they lying to me to a certain degree? Um, is this possible or, um, is it not? And turns out that they, they knew better than I did. Mm, that's a lovely sentiment too. I know we just said external markers are not the thing to hang your happiness on, but I am always curious to ask like, uh, somebody who has had the experience of winning a silver medal and a bronze medal, which of those is more torturous to win? Ooh, uh, bronze medals. I mean, a silver medal is the worst. Uh, I think that if you win a silver medal, then you're probably in a position to win a gold. Um, Chances are it might have been close or you had expectations to win a gold. Sometimes when you win a bronze medal, it's like you were ranked fifth and you snuck onto the podium, which is which has happened to me. And winning a bronze medal at my first world championships was like an amazing experience. And then like winning a silver medal this past summer is just like, 
yeah, I'm not happy with that at all. Um, so definitely a bronze medal. Um, but gold, if you have the opportunity to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's the, what do you think the best life lesson decathlon has taught you is? The best life lesson. Um, I, I was saying the other day that it's, and, and this isn't like an advertisement for any of the books, but it's like, I have the capability of doing hard things, mm. uh, the capability to set a goal, hold myself accountable and do the things that are required to achieve that goal. Uh, and I think that's an important lesson as I move forward because I am closer to the end of my athletic journey than I am the beginning. And there will be something that I have to do for the rest of my life from a job perspective. Uh, I don't know what that is right now, but once I find out what my next passion is or whatever I want to do, I know that I have the the ability to put my, my feet to the ground and, and work really hard to uh, have success in whatever I'm going to try to do. So I, I think that's one thing that the decathlon's taught me. Okay, Damien Warner, ladies and gentlemen. Huge thank you to Damien. I know he is busy training for the Olympics this summer and to defend his title. And I really appreciate him coming on and having this conversation with me and being able to share all of his insights with you. Here are four things I'm taking from this episode and that I want to leave you with today. The importance of stacking good days rather than having great days. You know, Damien said that his coach told him there's no such thing as a bad practice. And I think the lesson there is just show up. And even if it's not a perfect day, you did get another day in. And that is great. You did something rather than nothing. Along with that, having confidence in, being securely attached to your abilities. For Damien, those are his abilities in the decathlon. And him being confident in those abilities allows him to get adequate rest. You heard him say that after some competitions, he takes two or even up to four months off. That's not because he was complacent or lazy, but that's because he felt like that was the rest he needed. And he didn't cut it short because he wasn't scared of losing his abilities because he was securely attached to them. I think there's a great lesson in that. And we all have that type of confidence in what we can do. Then also just the focus. I love the way he talked about having his cues in his shoes and having his routines and rituals that allowed him fully transition from one event to the next, whether the previous event went well or whether it went poorly. He said, always give yourself a chance. We all have transition moments in our days, maybe transitioning from exercise to work, maybe from work to something at home, picking up the kids, going out with your partner, whatever it is, can you leave the past in the past and bring your full attention and presence to what's coming next? And lastly, curiosity. I love that Damien asked, how good can I be on these two days? Can I be the best decathlete in the world on these two days? We heard that with Courtney DeWalter. We hear it again here. Curiosity seems to be a thing that world-class athletes really prize and value. It's a mentality that instead of being closed down is really open. They go into their competitions and they say, let's see what happens. Let's see how I can perform on this day. So that is it. Thank you guys for listening. A huge thank you again to Damian Warner. A big shout out to Nate. Nate Meckler, who works the Growth Equation, was a huge help in prepping for this episode. And a huge thank you to all the other members of the Growth Equation. Brad Stahlberg, Steve Magnus, Chris Douglas, and John Summerford. I will talk to you again on Monday. Until then, have a great weekend. And as always, farewell. Farewell.